Now we have come to the last part of our forum. So there will be two closing speeches. The first one will be given by Mr. Jeffrey Morrow, CEO of the Gate Venture. And uh, Mr. Morrow, please. Ladies and gentlemen, um, what perhaps Yen Weiji should have said was that the person standing here before you should have been a gentleman called Dr. Johnny Hon, who is the chairman of the Global Group. And the news that I have for you is that I am not Dr. Johnny Hon, as much of a surprise as that they come. Unfortunately, Dr. Johnny Hon is unable to be with us. He was uh, kept in China for various reasons. He's not in prison. It's just that he was kept in China for various reasons. Um, and so uh, in the office, we, were, we drew straws. And I, I'm not sure if I won or lost. But anyway, um, here, here I am. Um, I, I, I must warn you that I'm a poor substitute uh, for Dr. Hon. And uh, also to add to the disappointment of the ladies present, I have to add that he's also far better looking than I am. However, Johnny Hahn is chairman of the global group of companies and vice president of the 48 group club. And I should explain that for many years I was deputy chairman of the global group and I'm still very involved in the company today. Hence, Dr. Hahn has outlined to me his thoughts on the various matters that are on the agenda for today and have been, uh, which I will try and express. If you agree with those thoughts, then please compliment me. And if you don't, I'm going to give you Dr. Hahn's telephone number afterwards. Dr. Hahn told me that for over eight years now, the LSESU China Development Forum has established itself not only as the largest student-run China-themed forum in Europe, but also as its most prestigious. I can see how you're able to attract such outstanding speakers that I've heard today. There is always an exception to the rule. <laughs> the motto of the global group is bridging the new frontiers. This is not because Dr. Hahn is a big fan of Star Trek, but because global's business specializes in venture capital, investment asset management, and strategic consultancy. Nothing is more important to us than linking the two markets of the UK and China to mutual advantage, based on the complementary nature of their economies. That is why your conference today and all the work that you do is so important to us, and why we were delighted to sponsor this forum. It is also why Dr. Hon and the Global Group attach great importance to our support for the Group 48 Group as the original icebreakers who paved the way for today's thriving Sino-UK relationship, aptly now called a golden age by both governments during the tense and difficult days of the Cold War. Your generic theme of navigating complexity is very apt. I remember as a child of about six or seven being asked by a teacher in school to name the country with the largest population. My hand shot up. England, I said. 
No, I was told. It was a country called China, and she wrote the population number on the blackboard. It went on forever. I couldn't believe the number of zeros. And from that day, I've been intrigued by the history and complexity of the country that is home to the oldest recorded and unbroken civilization on Earth. My first commercial involvement with China was, believe it or not, as a songwriter and record producer. I had been fortunate in having had hits in most countries around the world and felt that now was the time for me to conquer China. Some hopes. <laughs> it wasn't just that I had difficulty in finding the Chinese equivalent to rhyming moon with June, but the total difference in culture and business. Navigating complexities, I never even got as far as the ship to start navigating. In recent times, China has endured more than a century of chaos and turmoil. However, over the past nearly four decades, this ancient land has transformed itself and developed more rapidly and dramatically than any country in history. Yet it has retained its essential and distinctive Chinese features. And so, when I was young, I thought that everything about China was complex. But I now realize how could it be otherwise? We now live in a time when China is increasingly dominating the headlines and setting the international agenda. For many, both Chinese people and those like myself who love China, this is by no means always free of frustrations. I'm sure, for example, that you recall the recent headlines blaming China as the new colonial oppressor because she was supposedly buying up all that Latin America and Africa could produce. I'm equally sure you're aware of today's headlines blaming China for an economic downturn in Latin America and Africa, now that China is buying slightly less. Was it Confucius who said, you just can't bloody win? <laughs> Probably not, but nevertheless, it's true. It is, of course, also true that the Chinese economy is now growing at a somewhat slower pace than was the case in previous decades. Considering the overall size that the Chinese economy has now attained, second only to that of the United States of America, and steadily closing that gap as well, it could scarcely be otherwise. That is why President Xi Jinping and President Li Keqiang have aptly referred to this as the new normal. This new normal embraces a strategic shift towards an economy focused on services and on innovation. One that is green and sustainable, one that rejects waste and the unthinking and irresponsible overuse of resources that are both finite and polluting. One that appreciates and values quality above quantity. In a word, one that has come to terms with something that we in England have long had to acknowledge that size isn't everything. Last year, the Chinese economy grew by 6.9%. Whilst this is, of course, considerably below the double-digit growth that China talked up annually for some two decades hitherto, it is precisely because of the changes wrought by such growth in the recent past that today's growth of 6.9 actually means that China is still contributing more to the growth of the global economy in absolute terms than it did a decade ago. 
For example, on the eve of the global financial crisis in 2007, China's increase in nominal GDP was $794 billion. In 2014, despite a sharp deceleration in the rate of growth, nominal GDP was still higher than in 2007 at $864 billion. I always think it's a bit of a cheat when speakers simply quote facts they've read on Google, but here I go. If China's annual increase in nominal GDP was a country, it would qualify for membership of the G20. Every year, China's annual growth constitutes more than the total economy of Turkey. This was the case both in 2007 and 2014. In 2014, as mentioned, China's growth within the region of $864 billion. The entire Turkish economy was $798 billion, and Saudi Arabia and Switzerland, also G2 members, were respectively $746 and $701 billion. It is further worth noting that there are many in the international community who, while seeking to ascribe to China the responsibility for the difficulties currently faced by the global economy, these supposedly being due to China's slower rate of growth, they would in fact be more than delighted were they able to approach China's new normal rate of growth themselves. Earlier this month, the IMF released its revised forecast for global growth in 2016. According to the IMF, the global rate of growth in 2016 will be 3.5%. Within this, China will grow 6.3%, the USA by 2.5%, the UK by 2.2%, and the EU by 1.7%. That is, China is set to grow this year by nearly twice the global average, and but a little over three times the rate of growth in the US and UK, and well over three times that of the EU seems to me that China has somewhat more justification than did a certain former UK Prime Minister in declaiming, crisis, what crisis? However, in banding around these growth figures, we should remember what this means in terms of people's lives. In preparing this speech, I learned a staggering fact that since 1981, China has reduced the number of people living in internationally defined poverty by 728 million. Over the same period, the entire rest of the world only managed to lift 152 million people out of poverty. That is, for every one person lifted out of poverty in the rest of the world during this period, more than four Chinese people were similarly uplifted. Indeed, when one takes into account such factors as births and rates of population growth, it would not be unreasonable to conclude that were it not for poverty reduction in China, there would have been no global reduction in the rate of poverty at all over recent decades. Over 50 years ago, Mao Zedong observed, and as the subsequent China leaders have echoed, China ought to make a greater contribution to humanity. As China's economy has advanced, and as its poverty levels have inexplicably declined, we find the issue of common prosperity for both China's neighbours as well as for the wider world increasingly coming to the fore. China's leaders and officials are increasingly saying 
They do not wish to see a world where only China is prospering and where the rest of humanity is failing to enjoy the fruits of development or is even mired in conflict, turmoil and war. One might say quite truthfully that such sentiments reflect traditional Chinese philosophy and morality. Nor indeed are they unique to China. In the Bible, for instance, we find such words as wisdom, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. But today such sentiments cannot be a matter of altruistic aspiration or high ideals alone. If we are to navigate the complexities of globalization, we all need investment opportunities for capital, suitable imports to benefit our economies and meet our needs, and thriving markets of people able to purchase the goods that we produce for export. In a word, we sink or swim together. It is long past time for zero-sum solutions to give way to win-win outcomes. To this end, and as a responsible member of the international community, China has long since been an active participant in such global institutions as the International Money Fund and the World Bank. The new feature in the situation is that China is also now increasingly taking the lead in the creation of new institutions designed not to supplant existing bodies but to supplement them and based on broad and inclusive participation. Four months among these are the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, formally launched in Beijing early this month, and the New Development Bank, jointly launched together with China's partners in the BRICS Club, Brazil, Russia, India, and South Africa. But by far the most ambitious, visionary, and transformative initiative that China has unveiled is President Xi Jinping's concept of the One Belt, One Road, spanning the three continents of Asia, Europe, and Africa, and embracing at least 65 countries. This revival of ancient trade routes, which first took shape when the Chinese dynasties of the East were complemented by the Roman Empire of the West and by the Persian and other great civilizations along the way, is also at the same time strikingly modern in its desire to hold global free trade and an open world economy, and to enhance regional cooperation based on market principles. I have heard other speakers today eloquently address you on this, but I feel that such is the epic scale of this grand project that is just worth revisiting for one moment. To supplement the five main directions that this project will take, a further six economic corridors are envisaged, and together, these new silk routes will embrace and will require major investments in railways, highways, sea transportation, pipelines, and the information superway and connectivity. To translate this grand vision into reality will require trillions of dollars investments. I'm not asking for a whip round here by the people present, but the, this is the greatest business and investment opportunity of all time. One does not need to be studying for a PhD in international relations to begin to grasp the strategic and geopolitical challenges entailed in even starting to turn the bold strategic vision 
into reality. If finding a way to a solution of the problem facing Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and other countries and regions along both the old and new Silk Roads is not a matter of negotiating complexity, then frankly, what is? But equally, unless we can articulate not just a vision, but also a roadmap towards a future of development leading to ultimate prosperity, then the vicious cycle of poverty, extremism, and conflict will not only fail to be broken, but rather will continue to suck others into its tragic and vicious whirlwind. Finding the ways to navigate such complexities is the task of all of us, and especially of you, the leaders of the future. China's development over the last more than three and a half decades, with all its contradictions, caveats, and doubtless future challenges, shows what can in fact be done. Just so long as we remember the old adage, where there is a will, there is a way. Let that be our watchword. Sometimes the most welcome words in a closing speech are the words, in conclusion. And so may I say, in conclusion, that I thank you so much for your kind attention and that Dr. And I, Dr. Han and I truly hope that today's forum has lived up to all of your expectations. I wish you every success in your work, studies, and future. Thank you. So the final closing speech will be delivered by Rantoli, who is the chief director of the forum. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Rantoli, and I'm over in charge of this forum. Thank you so much for staying. It is really an honor for us to host you, all of you today. When, the, when we started the forum this morning, I thought it would be such a long day and didn't expect at all that we, we would come to the end so early. And I hope you enjoyed the forum as much as I did. Before we close, we, on behalf of the organizing committee, I would like to thank the following people and organizations. First of all, our speakers. Thank you so much for coming to this forum and, to, and for creating this very intellectually stimulating experience for all of us. Next. Thank you, our co-organizer, LSE Asia Research Center, our collaborators, Confucius Institute for Business London, and the 48 Group Club for general support during the preparation for this forum. Next, our sponsors. Our platinum sponsor, the Global Group International Holdings and AIA company, Shanghai Branch, and our gold sponsors, Hong Kong ASEAN Economic Cooperation Foundation for general support. Without your support, the forum would not have been this successful. And our LSE Annual Fund, thank you so much for your support for this student-organized event. Next, thank you, the journalists from our media partners and the accredited media. Thank you for coming and re reporting this event. Last, but definitely not the least, thank you, the stewards who have, work, have, who have been working so hard towards the success of this event. Without you, the forum wouldn't have been possible at all. And our dear audiences, you are one of the most important reasons why we organize this forum every year for the... Not for the <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. You are one of the most important reasons why we have, striving so, we have been striving so hard to organize this forum for the past eight years. 
We will definitely work hard to continue providing this, this platform for open, in-depth, and comprehensive discussions on China. With that, I will close the forum for today. Thank you so much, and see you next year. Thank you. And just one last reminder, to be very eco-friendly, we would like to recycle the name tags you're wearing. And my colleagues will be standing at the two exits to collect the name tags. Please pass your name tags to them. And thank you. See you next year. Thank you so much.